Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 536, Think Little. Why did Jesus use small children as examples of how we should live? Should we all start cutting off our body parts? And did Jesus give us a simple manual for church discipline, or was there more to it than that? This week, we begin Jesus' fourth discord as we study Matthew chapter 18. Hello, everyone. It's good to be together again on this study of the Gospel of Matthew. Today, we're going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 18, about the first two-thirds of it. In chapter 18, we're entering into what is known as Jesus' fourth discourse. Uh, there's five in Matthew's Gospel. This one is focused on relationships uh, within the community of believers. Jesus was anticipating the challenges that would come uh, in the life of the not-yet-created church. But remember, Matthew wrote this for the church. As I've said before, uh, historians think he was probably part of the church in Antioch. But in this discourse, Jesus instructs the disciples about the ethical norms of the kingdom. He focuses on humility and discipline and forgiveness. These kingdom norms are a reversal, as we're going to see, of the world's standards that, that they're still governing the disciples' thinking. We know this because they ask him, who's the greatest in the kingdom? So Jesus begins by talking about true greatness. Let's look at chapter 18, starting at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him among them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you change and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever will humble himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives, some translations say, welcomes one such child in my name, receives me. Now, maybe the disciples asked this question because they noticed that um, Peter, James, and John had an exclusive invitation to go up the Mount of Transfiguration. Or they noticed that Jesus sent Peter to get the fish for the, the two drachma tax, which was for two of them, for him and Peter. So this whole theme of, of what is our position in, in the kingdom opens up here and then... Uh, Matthew's going to look at it with more depth in chapter 20, so we'll we'll look at that then. But it's interesting because it says, it doesn't say it in Matthew, but in, in both Mark and Luke, it indicates that this point of, of hierarchy, of status, was becoming a, a, a place of real friction for them. Uh, it, it, Mark says the disciples were arguing along the way. Luke says a dispute among, uh, arose among them about who would be the greatest. So Jesus takes a child, and he's using a child to to vividly illustrate the profound difference between the the standards of the world and the standards of the kingdom of heaven. And I think he uses a child almost for shock value, because, you know, in their culture, children were essentially invisible. They had had no rights, unlike nowadays, uh, and, and... Properly, uh, the the rights of the child have been enshrined, for example, in the UN. Uh, but unlike us, back then, a child 
it's like they were invisible. They had they had no rights, no value. So he takes the child and puts it in front of them. What's he doing? Well, Jesus is is calling for a radical inversion of all of their assumptions about leadership, about what's important. The disciples, of course, just displayed their concern for status. But this is completely incompatible with God's values. True discipleship must involve deliberately and repeatedly turning away from this natural human tendency. So Jesus says, unless you change, or other translations say, unless you are converted, which is actually a better word there based on the Greek, unless you were converted and become like children. Converted in Greek, it's strepho, and it's a strong word, really strong, and it literally means to twist, which suggests discomfort, doesn't it? It means to twist, uh, and it implies to turn around. The heart of conversion is fundamental. It is all-embracing because it calls us to move at the deepest level from self-love to Christ love, and there is no getting around it. Jesus is calling all who will follow him to abandon, which is usually painfully, all our thoughts of personal status and to accept uh, or even to seek a place at the bottom of the pecking order. This is radical because it is so cuts across our flesh, the way we're wired. And once again, it takes us back to the beginning of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. This is the radical demand of the kingdom. And this is what conversion means. Conversion, folks, is so much deeper than praying a prayer. I'm all for praying a prayer, turning our hearts to Jesus, but that is not conversion. Conversion is deep And it is all-encompassing in our lives. It's not a change of a belief system. It's not about accepting Christ, a term, by the way, that I've never liked very much, because I don't accept him. I receive him because he's accepted me. But anyway, it's not about accepting Christ. It's about a total reorientation of our lives. Folks, we cannot hold on to our values which, if we're honest, they're the world's values. We can't hold on to our, our preferences, our rights, our, our understanding of, of significance. We can't hold on to those things and enter into the life of the kingdom. I believe we're in a time that the Holy Spirit is just shining a searchlight on the church on this very issue. We cannot hold on to these things our preferences, our rights, our significance, if we're going to enter into the life of this radical, ultimate reality, kingdom of heaven. So Jesus held up a child as an ideal of unconcern for social status. Uh, Jesus is teaching the twelve to accept a position in the social scale, even among themselves, that is like a child, the lowest in the hierarchy of authority. The key word here, of course, is humble. And 
humility is more than a frame of mind. It's more of saying, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm feeling humble. I'm not exalting myself. Humility is actively lived out. <clears throat> I've had two wonderful church, fa- uh, church fathers, spiritual fathers in my life. And the first one was Pastor Bob Birch. He was a giant in the church um, in Western Canada, where I come from. He actually lived till three weeks shy of 100 I know he was still preaching at my church when he was 90, and and he lived a, a life of such depth in Christ. Why do I bring this up? Because I learned from watching him, this, this man who was thought of so highly, even in his 80s, I watched him, he would be in a living room, and young people would be coming in, like into my living room, whenever Pastor Bob came to town, it's like my house filled up. And he'd very quietly get out of the chair, and he'd sit on the floor so that somebody else could have the chair. He would always be serving in quiet ways. Humility is not a frame of mind. It's a decision to live in a certain way. It is actively lived out. Howard Thurman who was uh, Martin Luther King's mentor, he said that humiliation is the only path to humility. So let's make this practical. Jesus is calling us to give ourselves willingly to insignificance, to powerlessness, willingly to live in bad situations, willingly to reject any hierarchical honors, There's going to be more on this when we get to chapter 20. Remember, it was Jesus who said in Matthew 11, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Remember, again, back to the Beatitudes, it's the meek, it's the gentle, it's the humble who will inherit the land. T.S. Eliot, wonderful 20th century poet, follower of Christ. He, uh, <laughs> I want to give you two lines from uh, four quartets, his poems. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. St. Jerome, one of the church fathers, he understood the radical nature of Jesus' words and the radical example that Jesus gave to the disciples and to us. Jerome said this, Jesus' words might be taken as, Whosoever therefore humiliates himself like this child is greater in the kingdom of heaven, so as to imply that anyone who imitates me and humiliates himself uh, following my example so that he abases himself as much as I abased myself in accepting the form of a servant will enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus pulls this child out. Learn from this child. You've got to come to the kingdom as a child. So what is the humility of a child? Well, we could describe that lots of us in lots of ways, but it just a few things. The humility of a child is lived out in full dependence upon others. A child's not ashamed of its littleness. 
A healthy child trusts those who care for him. A child delights in receiving gifts. Unlike as we get older, we, we, we're kind of too proud to accept help. A little child says, help, quickly. And of course, a child is innocent. And we all know this. We raised four boys, and now they're raising all our grandchildren. And we know, as parents, to guard our children's innocence as long as we can, because we know how precious innocence is. These are all aspects, characteristics of a child. And then verse 5, Jesus says this, And whoever receives or welcomes one such child in my name receives me. To receive or welcome means to accept, to embrace, and it means to care for and care about. The child is a little one. Jesus talks about the little ones at different times throughout this gospel. The, the power of welcome is huge. It, 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 the power of acceptance can change someone's heart. The invisible become visible. Those who feel that they have no worth begin to see that they do have worth in God and in his family. The, the power of acceptance is, is greater than probably any of us can ever understand. So he says, whoever welcomes one such child receives me. The child is welcome and received in my name. The child represents Jesus. I want us to get this. The the church fathers help us to take this a little deeper. The child represents Jesus. To welcome a child is to welcome Jesus himself. That's why he said, in my name. Now, in this way, the least important person, the little ones, are given infinite importance because they are we're receiving Christ when we receive them. The, the, the last shall become first, as, as he promises, and we'll see that again in chapter 20. Jesus received us, you and me, as valuable. When we understand this, it can motivate us, it can inspire us, and it can remind us to treat the little ones around us as valuable. And yes, he brings a child up, but it's as an example. You can take it literally as the child, but it's an example of all those little ones, all those those easy-to-overlook ones, the, the smaller ones. Chromatius, one of the church fathers, he saw a deeper reading here, and we've gone through this again and again, the literal, the moral, the, the spiritual, or water-to-wine reading, and he, he said this, so that he, that is Jesus, might reveal a perfect example of humility in his person, the Lord also condescended to be made a child by assuming flesh. We learn this from what was written about him. And he quotes Isaiah 9.6, Seeing that a child is born to us and a son is given to us, whose rule was made upon his shoulders. Now, St. Ambrose wrote similarly. He said this, Who is this child? 
I think it must be the child of whom Isaiah speaks. A child is born to us, a son is given to us. Now learn how you recognize this child. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Ambrose is quoting uh, 1 Peter 2.23. This emphasis on child, I think, is important. You know, I, I was looking, and, and in the whole uh, birth nativity narrative, Matthew, who wastes nothing, who does nothing by accident, he uses the word child very definitely 11 times in the birth narrative. God is fully represented in Jesus. He is the exact representation, the exact expression, in one translation says in Hebrews 1.3. God is like Jesus. As Brian Zahn said last week in the podcast, Jesus is what God is saying. I love that. Jesus is represented in the child. So God is represented in Jesus. Jesus is represented in the child. I want you to think about something. God is childlike. What do I mean by that? He's not far away. He's not slow to turn to us. He does not want to be worshipped from afar. He does not present himself in a role. God is like a child, without guile, without flattery. He's open. He's delighting in both loving and being loved. Isn't that what a child is like? Childhood, childlikeness, belongs to the divine nature. This is why Jesus said that in order to enter the kingdom, enter the life of the kingdom, the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's only one way to enter into that life, is to enter as a child. When my children were small, if they were hurt, they came running. If they were excited about something, they wanted to tell me. They came to me with open affection and without reservation. Now, as they got older, I watched them become a little more reserved. They wouldn't come running to me every time they hurt themselves. I mean, this is part of growing up. But you see, God is like that. He's open. He, he's filled with affection and loves receiving affection. He comes to us without reservation. George MacDonald, 19th century theologian and writer, said this, God is represented as a great king on a grand throne, thinking how grand he is and making it the business of his being and the end of his universe uh, to keep up his glory. But brothers, have you found our king? There he is, kissing the little children and saying they are like God. <laughs> Jesus by the way, you'll note, repeats one, one such child. He repeats it five times in the next 10 verses. One stresses the importance of individual people. 
It reflects Jesus and Matthew's passion for the individual. Not, I don't mean the individualism of our time, leave me alone, I've got my rights, but care for the individual, care for the other, especially the insignificant, the the ones easy to overlook. These are the little ones. Well, we better move on. I feel like I could say more and more about those first five verses, but let's go to, uh, start at verse six, uh, where he talks about temptation to sin. If any of you put a stumbling block before one, you see that one again? Uh, If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little children who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. (laughs) Strong words. Again, We've taught about rhetoric and Jesus using strong words, hyperbole, um, to, to change our way of thinking. But here he gives the alternative to welcoming the little ones is to cause them to struggle and, and therefore to stumble. Instead of being welcomed, they're rejected. You know, this usually takes the form of just being ignored. Um, being ignored causes the little ones, the outsiders, the weaker ones. It causes them to stumble on their journey of discipleship. But he goes further because Jesus recognizes that that there's some destructive people, purposely destructive. Earlier he called them wolves in sheep clothing. Um, They not only reject Christ and the gospel, they entice his little ones to sin and therefore lead them away from following him. And he says, this is so serious, it would be better if they died before they could do this. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. Note there's two woes here. The first one is, the terrible fate uh, of the one who causes the stumbling. But the second woe is to the world, because when this happens, the world suffers, and the world is suffering, and the world is a dangerous place, and there's and in, in a dangerous world, there's going to be stumbling that will happen. But Jesus focuses on just how serious this is. Now, we have this passage, and we looked at a parallel passage earlier in uh, chapter 5, 29, 30. He says, if your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. Better to enter life maimed or lame than have two hands and feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. So, What does Jesus mean by pulling out an eye and cutting off a hand? Well, let's just review very quickly what I said in 
in uh, episode 12 on chapter 5, the church fathers understood that Jesus was not literally telling people to maim themselves. Jesus is using hyperbole, again, rhetoric, to tell us and the disciples, deal radically with sin in your life. Apollinaris, who was a bishop of Laodicea, said this, He speaks about the members of the body, but employs hyperbole. It is not that one should literally cut off one's members. Rather, one is called to mortify them and to render them useless to sin. So Jesus is saying, don't give yourself any wiggle room with sin. It is so hard to be firm with ourselves and and face honestly our sin. It's so easy for us to downplay our sin or to make excuses. Origen, late second century church father, said this, It is possible to apply these words also to those near to us, just as we do our own body parts, because of the closeness of a family member or some habitual friendship. Also St. Hilary, he said this, We are here being advised to pluck out inordinate loves or friendships if they are the occasion that leads us further into wrongdoing. I think that's one water-to-wine reading that, well, actually, it's a moral reading, and it's I think it's very practical. And and he says, oh, you're going to be thrown into the eternal fire. We're going to look a little bit more at this in the weeks to come, and next week's passage will move us forward on this. So I'm going to just go right by it for today. Let's come to the parable of the lost sheep, starting at verse 10. Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven, their angels continually see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in and search in search of the one who went astray? And... If he finds it, truly, I tell you, he rejoices over it more uh, than the 99 who never went astray. So it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should be lost. Again, I, I emphasize one so we'd see it. It's repeated throughout this short parable. These little ones are easily despised on earth, and yet they are represented in heaven by angels. When Jesus says that the little ones will have full access to the Father, and that's what he's saying, their angels are always before the Father. When he says that, we see the kind of God that Jesus knew as his Father. The kingdom of God is directed toward the smallest people. I'm absolutely convinced of this. It embraces everyone. But there's, there's, there's something that, that is close and dear to God's heart and therefore the way the kingdom works around the, the economically, the socially, the politically powerless people, the weak. And they're of first importance to God. And of course, this, this conviction of mine has, has been part of the very fabric of Impact Nations, where we go to the, where the, those who are the poorest, who are being ignored. We're going because it's the movement of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, what's happening here is Jesus is giving dignity to these people. And I think he's giving dignity to everyone who works with these uh, unstrategic little people, the ones where there's no advantage for taking care of them. Jesus' words challenge us to think little. They challenge us to ask for his eyes to see the invisible ones. Now, Matthew wants his readers to apply the character and desires of God to their relationships in the community, especially to the marginal. Reveals the value that God places on even the least deserving and the care he extends to them. God is not passive. He's not waiting for people to approach him. He goes He's that shepherd who goes looking for the lost sheep. One of the things I teach a lot about is is we are following the king, and we are following the seeking king. Jesus didn't hang back and just wait for people to come to him. He was always out. Read through the gospel accounts, and you will see him always interacting, and usually it's what some sort of outcast. And uh, they may be a moral outcast. They, they may be an outcast because of physical infirmity. They, they, they could be an outcast because of their social standing. He goes. He is the seeking king. God is not passive. And so what he says about the shepherd is also a model for us to follow. You know, the, the church fathers had an awful lot to say about this parable. And uh, I want to read for, uh, something that Christostom said. I think he gave some very practical and positive application to to this parable of the, the 99. When God rejoices so greatly when one little one has been found, how is it possible that you look down upon these whom he so eagerly seeks? Even for some weakling or a pauper, you might say in reply, But that is precisely the reason why you ought to do whatever it takes to make sure that such a person is saved. It is for this reason that I urge you, as soon as we step outside at early dawn, let us have in mind this goal only, being earnest about this matter above anything else, to rescue those who are in danger. I mean the danger for the soul that the devil inflicted upon humankind. Well, that's clear, isn't it? It's powerful. It's interesting because Christostom sees this parable primarily in the context of evangelism, of Christ reaching a lost world. But also, it seems very clear, Matthew is is addressing the church community um, throughout this entire discourse that we're looking at today. And, And I think we're looking at one aspect of of spiritual warfare, because the enemy, like most predators, likes to isolate the weaker ones, the more vulnerable ones. Isolation is a destructive and very widespread tactic of the enemy against the church. We see it all the time. I was in a discussion with someone last week because because a dear brother had just gone away and wandered away. I've always loved Psalm 27, in the day of trouble, he will hide me in his tabernacle. We are the tabernacle of God. So we've been warned earlier not to despise these little ones. And and I've already pointed out that I think the main form of despising is often to ignore them. 
And he says, Jesus says, if we despise, ignore them, it's creating a stumbling block. Because the person feels hurt, they feel unappreciated, they withdraw. Now the enemy has the person exactly where he wants them. And uh, likewise, so on their side, they're pulling back. But on the side of the church, on our side, the community, when someone pulls back from our community and doesn't respond as we start to reach out to them, we feel disappointed and we feel awkward. We don't know what to do. And the usual instinctive response is, after a short while, is just to move on. You know... I think we need to follow Jesus' example and continue to go after the little ones. And I think this is an essential issue of dying to ourselves. We've talked about, you know, we got to die to ourselves, that we lose our life to find it. I think it's very practical because I know that for me, and I think for most of us, it's my flesh that pulls back from the emotionally and the socially uh, unattractive ones. Uh, The ones it's hard to talk to, the ones that seem to say and do things that I can't figure out. But that's my flesh. The Spirit of Christ is always the Good Shepherd. And so, when we encounter this as we do so often, we get to choose. Will I be led by my flesh, which withdraws, or by the Spirit of Christ, which pursues? Now, church fathers, a lot of them saw some deeper meaning, water to wine reading for this parable. St. Jerome saw a picture of the kenosis, of the emptying of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Uh, he saw a picture of kenosis in the very fact that the shepherd is carrying the sheep. He said, For that reason he descended to earth to save the one sheep that had perished, that is, the human race. Isn't that interesting? So he sees it at a whole other level. Yes, it includes going for the little one, the wounded one, but he says it's what Jesus did to the human race. Epiphanius, I stumbled on that. Epiphanius, Epiphanius, I know that one. I haven't had enough coffee today. Epiphanius said this, This one sheep is the man Adam, whom in the beginning the Lord has created in his image and likeness, the one strayed from the company of the angels by sinning. Our Lord seeks to recall all humanity from life to death. See, the church fathers insisted, uh, along with with Paul and, and Peter, that the Father does not want any to be lost. For example, 1 Timothy 2.4, God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is the heart of of God. I am convinced the scriptures are clear. I just gave you two. He is always seeking out for the one who's wandered away. 
It's not his desire that anyone should perish. Well, now let's talk about dealing with sin in the church. Verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's quoting from the law. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two uh, of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, I will. it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Now, this is the only other time other than chapter 16, and upon this rock I will build my church. This is the only other time in this gospel that Jesus refers to, or Matthew refers to, the church. This is how a disciple is to act whenever he's aware that a brother is in spiritual danger. They're to act with concern and great, sincere love. But also, he says, go to him. We've got to take the initiative. Again, for many of us, we pull back. We, we withdraw. He says, don't withdraw, press in, but press in with great concern and great love. This is the practical outworking of concern for the little ones. See, Jesus knew ahead of time, and Matthew was experiencing the need for dealing with sin and forgiveness and reconciliation restoration in the church. Note, Jesus said, when your brother or sister sins, this is about personal care, not church censure. We have used this in a wrong way and at times in very, very painful ways. I I sat at a time many years ago on a Sunday gathering and, and where leaders stood up and called out three people by name and called out their sin and said they were no longer welcome. It was horrific. And and maybe that seems too extreme for being possible, but it is possible. And and it can happen in other ways, but there, it's this passage is about personal care, not the church having a, uh, a manual for censuring and getting rid of people. Wherever Christ followers dishonor Jesus and dishonor their neighbors, disciples do have a responsibility to go. In going to the other person as a brother, we go knowing that we're now standing on equal footing. We're not talking down. This isn't a plan for for hierarchical pressure being put on anyone. This is one little one talking to another little one. Now, clear sin, and I don't mean personal offense, clear sin, though it's difficult, it is not to be ignored in the community of disciples. It is to be approached with sensitivity and as much discretion as possible. 
The church fathers are incredibly helpful at this point. So I'll let them speak for us all here. Christostom, make your cure easy to accept, for the words correct him mean nothing other than help him see his indiscretion. Be earnest toward his cure, not toward satisfying our anger and hurt feelings. Wow, that's so clear, isn't it? St. Jerome said this, If our brother has sinned against us and damages us in anything, we have the power of dismissing it. In fact, the obligation to do so, since we are commanded to forgive our debtors their debts. But if anyone sins against God, it is not in our control. We are, uh, but we are lenient over a sin against God, but act out our hatred when we ourselves are insulted. Boy, both of them just give us the straight goods, don't they? By going, the sinner is being taken seriously, is being valued as a brother or sister, is being treated with carefulness. Verse 17, but if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan, many translations say a Gentile, or a tax collector. The first two steps, where you go alone and then you take one other, are designed to avoid this last resort, the bringing the sin to the church. Now, it's really interesting because there are two diametrically opposed understandings of what Jesus meant when he said, treat them as you would a Gentile or a pagan or a tax collector. The first is that Jesus treated tax collectors and pagans with great care. He welcomed them. He treated them with affection. Matthew, who's writing this, was a tax gatherer, and Jesus invited him, welcomed him into his world. So they see this as an invitation to extend friendship and understanding to the sinning brother, that in that, that will turn his heart. But others say that this is a very poor understanding of, of, of Jesus loving the tax collector and, and the sinner. That, that Paul's letters indicate the need for excommunication. To ignore, to fully receive the sinner makes little sense in the context of the first two steps of correction. If you're going to ignore it anyway, do you ignore it at the beginning? Now, I tell you the truth. I am of two minds. And even among those who I walk with, we are of two minds on, uh, on this issue. But overall, however we do it, we do it with humility, we do it with sorrow, we do it with love and affection. 18, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus said that in chapter 16. But it's the issues that are bound or unbound. It's not the people. Now, we live in a time when pastors are very reluctant to address the issue of sin. I was watching... Um, a 60 Minutes interview a couple of years ago. 
and the secular reporter who'd spent a couple of weeks at this particular megachurch, when he interviewed the pastor, he said, why don't you ever talk about sin? And this is the secular reporter who noticed that. And the pastor said, oh, I don't want to make people feel bad. Surely this is a great error. Surely this is not go to the brother. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the preaching of repentance is the protection of the gospel. A repentance which uh, calls sin, sin, and which declares the sinner guilty. Protection. Protection. We're walking such a balance. We're not, we're not to be out there looking for other people's sin. We're supposed to be so aware of our own failing. But when there is clear sin against God, and that means sin against our neighbor, we can't be passive, but we can be very loving. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Now, we we see in this passage two things. Obviously, the power of agreement. Many of us are aware of that. Let's agree in prayer on this issue, and I think that's very important. But also the vital importance is a bigger issue of praying with others. This, this corporate prayer, coming together and crying out to God, marked the early church. It has marked every revival. Another church father, uh, Peter Chrysologus, said this, There are those who presume that the congregation of the church can be disregarded. They assert that private prayers should be preferred to, this of an honor, to, to that of an honorable assembly. There is this difference between the glorious fullness of the congregation and the vanity of separation that springs out of ignorance or negligence. In salvation and honor, the beauty of the whole body is found in the unity of the members. It is so important that we gather. Some gather in house churches. Uh, some gather Sunday mornings. But we must gather. You know, when we gather, there's something about his presence. How many times for many of us have we just encountered the presence of God as we've corporately cried out to him? He says, when we gather, there's a danger of isolation. I've told you before, John Wesley said, there is nothing so unchristian as a solitary Christian. So this passage finishes with a call to gather to gather to pray, to gather to worship, to pour out collectively our hearts before God in harmony with the activity of heaven. So we've looked at the first two issues of, of corporate life together that Jesus brings up in this discourse, uh, humility and discipline. For me, even as I've studied this, I've come to see in a deeper way the radical implications of what Jesus says about becoming like a child. And frankly, it challenges so much of, uh, of my ego self. No wonder he called this unless you be converted. Now, next week, 
We're going to look at the climactic parable of this chapter uh, about forgiveness. Uh, There's huge implications that are going to be raised next week by the unforgiving servant story. For example, what is the nature of God's forgiveness? Is it limitless? What's the relationship between judgment and mercy? What is the nature of God's judgment? What about the cross and forgiveness? And more and more. So I hope you'll join me next week, and I hope you'll join me in about one minute as Tim and I sit down to discuss what we've looked at today. God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, here's to the little ones. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, some really challenging stuff this week. Um, and I, I really appreciated you reminding us again of rhetoric. Uh, this is a classic example of Jesus' rhetoric. Yep. Uh, I mean, that whole millstone around the neck thing. Yep. I don't know if that was a common phrase back then or what, but it is. that's uh, not a pretty picture. Yeah, it's not it's, so pretty. No, it's, it seems like something a mob boss would do. In, yeah, in and, the, and that was just to warm them up for hacking off indeed limbs and indeed. poking out eyes yeah wow um hey before we jump into a couple of questions that i have out of today's teaching i wanted to just once again remind people of the christmas catalog every year impact nations puts out our, our christmas catalog it highlights a whole bunch of different areas of ministry for us uh i would encourage you if you don't have a paper copy if you do have a paper copy by the way pour yourself a coffee sit down and read some wonderful stories in there and they start i'll warn you uh, some of them are pretty difficult to read. Uh, you know, uh, we're rescuing people from pretty dangerous situations, to be honest. Uh, but uh, each and every time the Lord shows up and the miraculous happens. And so each story ends with uh, with rescue and it's wonderful. Um, I was thinking about it just today because actually we sent some funds today uh, to Uganda that are a direct result of, of funds that are given through the Christmas catalog. And that's for our um, our crisis pregnancy program. In Uganda, we are rescuing young women. That's not the right word. Uh, teenage girls. Yeah. You know, uh, some, some of them as young as 12. Yeah, exactly. Uh, who uh, find themselves pregnant. Uh, they've been abused. They're now abandoned uh, and alone and, and don't know what to do. Uh, our team is able to rescue them uh, from these terrible circumstances, give them a home. We've got a shelter in Uganda. Um, others uh, maybe aren't homeless, but they're able to still intervene and care for them. Uh but then they walk with them through the process of, of their pregnancy, and then we help cover the costs of their uh, their labor and delivery, even the prenatal care, things like that. Um, but then we're actually caring for them even after the fact. That yeah. Right now, we've got a shelter uh, in Uganda that I think has 19 babies in it. Um, but something scary going on. They've all got respiratory illness right now. We've got 19 sick babies in the shelter. Um 
We got a call yesterday asking if we could help provide uh, some equipment, a nebulizer and an oxygen concentrator specific for babies. A lot of these babies are premature, and so their airways are underdeveloped, and they get sick easier. Uh, and when they do get sick, it's that much more dangerous. Yeah. And so the equipment we just provided uh, is going to rescue lives. I believe it's going to save lives. So that was funded as a direct result of money given through the Christmas catalog. So I wanted to remind you, it's so vital. Please head to impactnations.com slash Christmas. Uh, you can look. There's several different categories of giving. Uh, rescue two lives, I think, is the, the page we call mm-hmm. uh, for for rescuing a mother and her baby. Uh, go check it out. Read some stories. It'll bless you. It'll encourage you. And please give because it it really does literally save lives. So, all right. Uh, I I've got a question for you. It comes back to our presentation of the gospel. We talk about that a lot here um, because we. We believe it's really important. We just spend time thinking about how we present the gospel, how we talk about the gospel. Sometimes we're fighting an uphill battle because I think that there's actually just cultural things uh, that are uh, wind against us, if you will. The culture has picked up stuff through the church over the years, but maybe not even directly. Like sometimes it's literally stuff they're picking up from sitcoms. Uh, hmm. And it's it's something that the world may perceive. I don't want to give the, the church uh, on the whole a failing grade on this because I don't actually hear it very often uh, from the pulpit and stuff. But you talked today, you quoted a couple passages about how God desires that all men be reconciled yes. to himself. He wants to draw all men to himself. and. I think that we just, I think all of us know anecdotally, we probably have a family member or a friend who's rejected the gospel saying, well, I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell, for instance. Yeah, that's and the, the, the Yeah, and the passages you just read clearly refute that. Like this, this is, <laughs> we have a father in heaven who longs to draw the little ones to himself. Uh, his great rescue plan of sending Jesus is evidence of that. Um, John makes it so very, very clear. And yet, there is this perception out there. Um, so my question is, do we need to spend more time, when we're talking about the gospel, do we need to spend more time specifically counteracting that false belief that God loves to send people to hell or is just waiting to send people to hell? Well, it's, it is a huge, uh, very pervasive understanding. And so clearly... When we are sharing good news, yeah, may I say that again? Good news <laughs> um, that that that's got to be our our anchor point for mm-hmm. however we share. Jesus came to reveal a loving, loving Father who's calling us home. Mm-hmm. Right, that the prodigal son is a wonderful example of that, and. We will get into more as we get closer Mm -hmm. uh, to the cross, as we get Matthew 25, and frankly, next week. uh, I really hope people will come and, and because there's some pretty deep issues about this. But yes, what we need to present is a beautiful gospel. And, um, And not, you know, I once had somebody text me, said, I've, I've been going to this church for a little while and, and I went again today, and I found out there's something else I'm not supposed to be doing. Hmm. You know, that's not the beautiful gospel. Yeah. Uh, it's He came to give us abundant life. Indeed. Uh, you you quoted 
uh, an unnamed preacher who said, I don't like to talk about sin because it makes people feel bad. Yep. So let's talk about sin. Uh, <laughs> As opposed to the unnamed preacher. <laughs> Indeed. I, I actually was just listening to some preaching this weekend uh, that was once again pointing out the folly of us having the same expectations of the world that we have of uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes. And how we tend to, the church at large has gotten into these culture wars, I think, because we have this expectation that the world behave the way we profess to to follow Christ. Do we need to talk about sin differently outside the church that we than we do inside the church? Are they two really different conversations? And how do we talk about sin outside the church? And how do we talk about it inside the church? Okay. Well, we talk about it inside the church, again, with compassion and care, but um, with an understanding that we are following the Jesus way, mm-hmm. right? Um, we are Jesus followers, and the Jesus way does not make room for sin, starting with us. Yeah. But if it is sin that becomes as I said, if, it, if it's sin against God or, or neighbor, then through this process that we talked about today, um, then we have to deal with it. We can't pretend it isn't there. But as you've heard me say, darkness is dark, sinners sin. Yeah. And the good news out there is not you're a sinner. The good news is Jesus has come to give you an abundant life. We're back to John 10, 10. Mm-hmm. And um, so clearly outside, you know, I, I, I'm i with people who who cuss because people cuss out there. Mm-hmm. If I've got a friend in the church who's cussing and cussing, I'll probably say, you know what? That's maybe not the best thing. You know, mm-hmm. I might even take them to Ephesians 5 or something. But, but out there, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and that's not the issue. The issue is this wonderful Jesus who starts to change us from the inside out. Yeah. yeah. Sin sometimes uh, is really more referred to as uh, individual sins, mm-hmm. but very often is more talked about as the thing that is plaguing the world. Yes. Sin is the problem that we're all facing. The sin nature. The, yeah, yeah. It is, it is the disease in need of a cure. Uh, and yet I think so often we try to, as we're talking about the gospel or talking about God's plan for the world, we so often actually zero in on sins rather than the, the plague that is yeah. sin yeah. and darkness. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. What's the, how can we nuance that for – because actually, again, we come back to this uh, expectation that the world has of how the church is going to come at them. So even if you're, uh, even if you're not um, going after individual sins or whatever, they're almost waiting for you to. Yeah, they like, are. Uh, like, uh, yep. I'm just waiting for you to come at me about my, my homosexuality or whatever. Like, um, or my addiction or whatever. Yeah, whatever it is. Um, I'm waiting for you to give me one more thing I'm not allowed to do really is what it comes down to. Yeah. So how do we, um, intentionally not do that? Do we have to say, look, I'm not, let's talk about 
the problem that is plaguing the world? What's the language that we can use to well, have those discussions? one of the things that, that again, in evangelism, uh, as I do at some point when I'm looking in front of a whole whack of people, I'll say, and you know life's broken. Mm. You know that there's conflict in your home. You know that, that you're hoping for much and only a little comes, and, and they 100% of the time, they start nodding mm-hmm. as I kind of go through what that is. And I say, haven't you had enough of that? Yeah. yeah. And then I point them to yeah. Jesus. And then, just to be clear, we're not. this is not a bait and switch where you get them to sign on the dotted line and then say, all right, now that you've signed the contract, we're going to list off all of your individual sins no. that you need to immediately stop and, no. and get rid of, rather than trusting the Holy Spirit within exactly. them to begin to bring about life change. Yes. Yeah. You point them to what is good. Mm-hmm. You point them to Jesus, and the other stuff starts to fall away. Yeah. And it's the work of the Spirit of God. Indeed. Yeah. And as we're making disciples, that's where one little one to another says, hey, I'm seeing something that is having negative fruit in your life. Can we talk about this? Because Jesus actually gave us some help on, on how we might yeah. behave differently. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Uh, looking forward to next week. Sounds like it'll be a barn burner. I hope it will be. <laughs> um we are here uh, every Thursday, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, uh, Facebook, YouTube, uh, and, of course, we've got our audio podcast. Uh, that's how most people uh, listen. That way it's just delivered directly to your uh, device every time. But uh, YouTube's another great way to do that. If you head to YouTube, hit subscribe, uh, hit that little bell, you'll get a notification every time a new video goes up uh, so that you can uh, yeah. be reminded and, and catch it every single week. We also have some other pretty great videos popping up these days. We do. There's some really exciting stuff. Uh, keep an eye out uh, next week. We've got uh, mm-hmm. a new video coming every single day. Uh, so be sure to be following us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever you do, um, because we've got some really, really encouraging stuff coming down the pipe next week. So yeah. looking forward to that. Awesome. Well, God bless you so much. Thank you for being with us and we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.